And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's December the 13th, 347th day of the year. 18 days remain to the year's over with. National holidays and observances. Day of the horse. Whether galloping through the fields or performing intricate maneuvers, horses captivate your heart and inspire with their beauty and spirit. National Cocoa Day. And the peanut gallery is tuning up. All right, now that we got that settled, National Violin Day, Hanukkah, and Blue Christmas, Gift of Sight Month, Operation Santa Paws, Worldwide Food Service Safety Month, National Ride a Business Plan Month, National Tie Month, National Pear Month, and Universal Human Rights Month. And there's not much of that going on. All right, in 1294, St. Celestine V resigns the papacy after only five months to return to his previous life as a ascetic hermit. 1545, the Council of Trent begins as the embodiment of the Counter-Reformation. 1577, Sir Francis Drake sets sail from Plymouth, England on his round-the-world voyage. 1623, the Plymouth Colony establishes a system of trial by 12-man jury in the American colonies. The, uh, the Mayflower, which, uh, of course, brought the first settlers to uh, Plymouth Colony, was actually funded by a branch of my family, and we never got repaid. 1636, the Massachusetts Bay Colony organizes three militia regiments to defend the colony against the Pequot Indians, a date now considered the founding of the National Guard of the United States. 1642, Abel Tasman is the first recorded European to cite New Zealand. 1643, English Civil War, the Battle of Alton takes place in Hampshire. 1758, English transport ship Duke William sinks in the North Atlantic. 360 people die. 1769, Dartmouth College is founded by the Reverend Lazar Wheelock with a royal charter from King George III on land donated by the royal governor, John Wentworth. And if you could see it today. 1818, Cyril VI of Constantinople resigns from his position as the ecumenical patriarch under pressure from the Ottoman Empire. 1862, American Civil War. Battle of Fredericksburg, Confederate General Robert E. Lee defeats Union Major General Ambrose Burnside. It's interesting, the, the liberal left is hot to try to do away with the entire history of the Civil War. Yep, South never happened. They want to destroy all the monuments. 1867, a Finian bomb explodes in Clerkenwell, London, killing 12 people and injuring 50. 1937, Second Sino-Japanese War, Battle of Nanking. The uh, city of Nanking, defended by the National Revolutionary Army under the command of General Tang Shingzi, uh, falls to the Japanese. 
followed by the Nanking Massacre in which Japanese troops rape and slaughter hundreds of thousands of civilians. 1938, the Holocaust. The Neuengamme concentration camp opens in the Bergdorf district of Hamburg, Germany. 1939, the Battle of the River Plate is fought off the coast of Uruguay, first naval battle of World War II. The Kriegsmarine's Deutschland-class cruiser, uh, Admiral Graf Spee, gauges three Royal Navy cruisers, HMS Ajax, HMNZS Achilles, and the HMS Exeter. Now, the Admiral Graf Spee was a, what's called a pocket battleship, but for its size, it carried... Um, out of weight. The, uh, the ensuing battle, the Exeter was severely damaged and forced to retire. They made for Falklands. Ajax and Achilles suffered moderate damage. The damage to the Graf Speed, though not extensive, was critical because her fuel system was crippled. Um... The Ajax and the Achilles shattered the German ship until she entered the port of Montevideo, the capital of neutral Uruguay, to make repairs. Langsdorff was told his stay couldn't be extended beyond 72 hours. Langsdorff was the commander of the Graspy. Apparently thinking the British had gathered a superior force to await his departure, he ordered the ship to be scuttled. Three days later, after finding out the truth, he committed suicide. 1943, World War II, Massacre of Calavita by German occupying forces in Greece. The uh, massacre was the near extermination of the male population and the total destruction of the town. Uh, it was in Axis-occupied Greece. It was done by the 117th Jager Division during World War II. The, um, you give any opposition... They took a hammer to swat a mosquito. 1949, the Knesset votes to move the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. 1957, a 6.5 Parsonage earthquake strikes Iran with a maximum Michaeli intensity of 7. That caused at least 1,119 deaths and um, damaged over 5,000 homes. 1959. Archbishop Macarios III becomes the first president of Cyprus. 1960, while Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia visits Brazil, his imperial bodyguard seizes the capital and proclaims him deposed, and his son, Crown Prince Asta Wilson, is made emperor. 1962, NASA launches Relay 1, the first active repeater communication satellite to be put in orbit. 1967, Constantine II of Greece attempts an unsuccessful counter-coup against the regime of the colonels. The regime of the colonels, as you might guess, was a right-wing military dictatorship that uh, ruled Greece from 1967 to 1974. Uh, April 21, 1967, a group of colonels overthrew the caretaker government a month before scheduled elections with Central Union. Uh, was favored to win, and they couldn't have that. Dictatorships are characterized by policies such as anti-communism, restrictions on civil liberties, and the imprisonment, torture, and exile of political opponents. Pretty much what our current administration is wanting to do. 
1968, Brazilian President Arthur de Costa de Silva issues AI-5, Institutional Act Number 5, enabling government by decree and suspending habeas corpus. 1972, Apollo program, Eugene Cernan and Harrison Smith begin the first and final extra-vehicle activity, or moonwalk, of Apollo 17. They're actually the last known humans to set foot on the moon. In 1974, Malta becomes a republic within the Commonwealth of Nations. 1974 also saw North Vietnamese forces launch their 1975 Spring Offensive, which results in the final capitulation of South Vietnam. All the money and lies we spent, all thrown away by the suits of Congress. 1977, Air India Flight uh, 216 crashes near Evansville Regional Airport, killed 29, including the University of Evansville basketball team, the support staff, and boosters of the team. 1981, General Wojciech declares martial law in Poland, largely due to the actions by Solidarity. Solidarity, for those who are not familiar or forgot, was uh, the full name of... Uh, its full name was the Independent Self-Governing Trade Union, also known as Solidarity. It's a Polish trade union founded in August of 1980 at the Lenin Shipyard in Gdansk, Poland. The first independent trade union in a Warsaw Pact country to be recognized by the state. The union's membership peaked at 10 million in September of 81, representing one-third of the country's working-age population. Uh, Solidarity's leader, Lech Wałęsa, was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 83 and Union is largely recognized having played a central role in the end of communist rule in Poland, which uh, Russia wants to bring back. 1982, a 6.0 North Yemen earthquake shakes southwestern Yemen with a maximum Mercalli intensity of 8, which is considered severe. Killed 2,800 and injured 1,500. 1988, PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat gives a speech at a U.N. General Assembly meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. The U.N. authorities refused to grant him a visa to visit the U.N. headquarters in New York. Had I been president at that time, if we didn't want him to come and wouldn't give him a visa for the U.N. to create a special meeting place for him to speak, the U.N. building would have been put up for lease and turned into apartments. 1989, the Troubles, attack on Derryard Checkpoint. Provisional Irish Republican Army launches an attack on a British Army temporary vehicle checkpoint near Rosalie, Northern Ireland. Two British soldiers are killed, two others are wounded. 1994, flagship airlines flight 3379 crashes in Morrisville, North Carolina. That's right near the Raleigh-Durham International Airport, killed 15. 1995, Bonet Air Flight 166 crashes in Soma Campagna near Verona, Villafranca Airport in Verona, Italy, killed 49. 2001, San Said Bavin, a building housing the Indian Parliament's attacked by terrorists. Twelve people were killed, including the terrorist. Now ask yourself, what did they accomplish? 2002, European Union enlargement. EU announces Cyprus, Czechia. Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, and Slovenia become members May 1, 2004. 2003, Iraq War, Operation Red Dawn, 
former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein's capture near his hometown of Tikrit. And in 2007, a Treaty of Lisbon is signed by EU member states to, attend, to amend both the Treaty of Rome and the Maastricht Treaty, which together form the constitutional basis of the European Union. The Treaty of Lisbon is effective from December 1, 2009. Well, we have been talking about a lot of uh, interesting things. We've been discussing... Um, The fact that there was more than one Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, apparently, he had been groomed from a very young age through the help of his brother, who was apparently a CIA employee. Now, it's interesting to note that. Had the Warren Commission paid attention to the testimony given by various people, it would have become eminently clear that a lot of the things laid at uh, Oswald's feet was not Oswald. In fact, the uh, yeah, Oswald that went to the Texas Employment Commission which is an agency that's supposed to assist people in finding a job. Met a woman named Laura Cottrell. Told her his experiences working at the state fair and that he's associated with the Teamsters. Well, the real Lee Harvey Oswald, the one killed by Jack Ruby, never worked at the state fair and he wasn't affiliated with the Teamsters. Uh, and Cottrell described Oswald as a biker type with violent tendencies. Now, Lee Harvey Oswald, from every photograph that you've seen of him, clearly is not a biker type. At the meeting, he hit Cottrell's desk with his fist, a fist and shouted obscenities and stormed out. None of that behavior demonstrated by this Oswald would be remotely associated with the known behaviors of the real Lee Harvey Oswald. Cottrell later identified a man by the name of Larry Crawford as the person with, that she met who claimed to be Oswald. And when the FBI couldn't shake her identification, they ignored her testimony. Now, Larry Crayford, was, whose little name was Curtis Laverne Crayford, was a drifter, but there's a whole lot more to him than that. Jim Garrison, the DA of um, New Orleans, investigated and uncovered the fact that Crafer came to Dallas in early October and worked for Jack Ruby at the Carousel Club. And he remained in the employ of Jack Ruby until November 22, 1963. The next day, which was the day that uh, Ruby shot uh, Os uh, Oswald, he hitchhiked out of town and ended up in Detroit. Well, William Boxley, an investigator for Jim Garrison and a former agent of the CIA, wrote a report that analyzed uh, Crafer's one commission testimony. According to what he wrote in October 2, 1968, memo to Jim Garrison, Larry Crafer's entire testimony is textbook quality for any intelligence services course and resistance to interrogation. 
It was a classic example of the art of selective recall. Now, other than the incident at Texas Employment Commission, which was designed to paint Oswald as an unhinged lunatic, Crayford's involvement was actually minimal. Um, his main uh, purpose seemed to be providing alibis for Jack Ruby. And Jack was almost never where the official story said he was. you got to remember, the Warren Commission's story was carefully crafted to paint the picture of Oswald being the sole lone nut gunman. So they had to show him, number one, as a communist, which they did, and that he was uh, basically unhinged, which things such as the eruption at the Texas Employment Office certainly did. Now, shortly after the Texas Employment Commission incident, Oswald was supposed to have rented a room at 621 North Marcellus in Dallas. His new landlady was a woman named Mary Bud uh, Bledsoe. Now, that name has come up in some interesting uh, situations. There's been speculation of a connection between her son, P uh, Porter Bedslow, and David Ferry through uh, Ferry's original Silver Air Patrol. The strangest thing about Mary Bledsoe is she's one of two witnesses who attempt to place Oswald on Dallas Transit Company bus that he allegedly fled Delia Plaza in after the assassination. Well... We're supposed to think it's just coincidence. Oswald had lived through there for a week and later, but she became a witness against him regarding a completely unrelated matter. And her testimony was riddled with errors and inconsistencies. Uh, certainly she was repeating a story she'd been told to, to parrot back to the, uh, the investigators. She had a very thorough coaching and one more coincidence involving Mary Bedslow relates to the fact she was a first cousin uh, to uh, Joel Ralston, Germany, Jr. Germany had been an Air Force officer who fought in World War II. Uh, had an illustrious career, career from which he retired in 1971. And his obituary is filled with his accomplishments and numerous titles awarded him as a high-ranking member of the Freemasons. And he also had another first cousin, R.D. Matthews. And R.D. Matthews was a known associate of Jack Ruby. In fact, Matthews was so well acquainted with the inside players associated with the assassination of President Kennedy, he was actually mentioned in the Warren Commission report, interviewed at length in 1978 by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And his attorney was a future U.S. District Judge, Harry Claiborne. Matthews intrigued investigators because of his intimate, uh, his intimate familiarity with the gambling underworld in Dallas, Las Vegas, and Cuba, where he lived for a time after the war. And he was a longtime friend of Jack Ruby. But then he knew most of the players in the Oswald-Ruby matrix. In October 63, Ruby placed a call to the Matthews home. Day later, according to one account, Ruby was in touch with Oswald, a man he supposedly didn't know. Well, after spending a week at that rooming house on the Marcellus Street, 
Oswald allegedly rented a room with Gladys Johnson at 1021 North Beckley in Oak Cliff. And this is the where the official story says Oswald lived till the day Kennedy was killed. And despite the fact there have been hundreds of serious researches of the assassination covering a time frame of nearly six decades, not a single one of them has been able to reach the simple and obvious conclusion Oswald never actually lived there. Well, the housekeeper at North Beckley Boarding House was a woman named Earlene Roberts. And she claimed the man staying there that everybody believes was Oswald identified himself as O.H. Lee. Now, the biggest problem we have identifying O.H. Lee as Oswald is that prior to the assassination, there was a man re residing at the boarding house who had been identified as Herbert Leon Lee, who stayed in room O. Now, the scrap of paper that Roberts handed to the police indicated O.H. Lee had been staying in room O, and he paid $8 a week beginning in October on October 14th. The FBI tracked down Herbert Leon Lee and interviewed him through his although his name and statements never seemed to appear in the official story. See, the FBI had the habit of, shall we say, uh, correcting any evidence that didn't fit with the official story. Now, after the FBI interviewed Herbert Lee's grandfather in Shreveport, Louisiana, Lee himself contacted the FBI by telephone on December 10th. He was formally interviewed December 17, 1963, after he said he'd been informed by his grandfather that the FBI was looking for him. And the story he told the federal agents didn't match the story of the person who he claimed he actually shared a room with, James Douglas Watson. Lee claimed he'd lived at the property for about four or five weeks in October 63. Lee also claimed he didn't remember seeing Lee Harvey Oswald living there, and that both he and Watson left the Beckley Rooming House November 1, 1963. Well, Herbert Leon Lee was, in fact, staying at the Beckley boarding house for the entire month of October and never met or even seen Oswald. On November 1st, Oswald opened a new P.O. box in Dallas, box 6225, at the Terminal Annex building. Information regarding the new P.O. box had been provided to the FBI by a confidential informant identified only as Dallas T-1C. And on that application, Oswald indicated his address was actually 3610 North Beckley. So, should everybody run over to 3610 North Beckley? Well, unfortunately, there was no 3610 North Beckley. Another dead end. Now, the FBI compiled a list of the places Oswald had stayed beginning October 13th, the day after he is supposed to have moved out of the Marcellus address. Meanwhile, Earlene Roberts puts Oswald to Beckley Boarding House from October 14th through November 22nd. Ruth Payne told investigators something quite different. She put Oswald at her residence in Irving, Texas, on many of the nights in question. According to the Commission Exhibit 1963, Oswald stayed the Payne residence on October 13th, the 18th through the 22nd, the 25th through the 28th, November 1 through 4, 8 through the 12th, and the 21st. So where exactly was Oswald staying? Most certainly not at 1026 North Beckley. And if the boarding house is going to be used as part of a plan to frame a patsy, it doesn't make sense to have him live there while you're doing it. Well, the person living at 1026 North Beckley was, in fact, according to all the evidence, the same person that shot J.D. Tippett, for which Oswald himself had an alibi. 
The more interesting coincidence regarding Earlene Roberts is she had a sister who'd been identified as one Bertha Cheek. And Bertha Cheek was known around Dallas as a businesswoman who dealt mostly in housing and real estate. And she owned several properties in and around Dallas and previously been involved in the nightclub business. During her time in the nightclub business, she became an associate and close friend of Jack Ruby. It's funny how Ruby pops up in almost everything that we discuss. On November 18, 1963, she spent several hours with Jack at the Carousel Club. So what are the odds that the two boarding houses Oswald and lived at would have a direct connection to Jack Ruby? Now, if you look at the evidence and put all the Warren Commission brouhaha aside, Oswald was not a communist, had no direct contact with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, hadn't formed a New Orleans chapter, as everybody's alleged, didn't print the leaflets he was caught passing out on the street where it was filmed by WDSU-TV. The entire WDSU incident that was certainly uh, staged, and the man who was directly responsible for staging it happened to have received his Mexico tourist visa just prior to Oswald. Forgery of the postal money, what he supposedly used eliminates the possibility Oswald ordered the rifle that he supposedly shot Kennedy with. And Oswald's appearance at the Texas Employment Commission was shown to have been actually made by Larry Crayford, who was sent to portray Oswald as a loose cannon. Boarding house connections to Jack Ruby draw into question if Oswald ever stayed there. In fact, ever stayed at either one of them. Well, there are many other incidents of Oswald appearing in two places at once or in places he's never supposed to have been. Evidence of Oswald having been impersonated is overwhelming and undeniable. Two years leading up to the assassination, named Lee Harvey Oswald, is being used by numerous other people. And the one thing that can't be ignored is that none of the incidents that we've attributed to Oswald was Oswald actually involved in. His life, as was reported by the Warren Commission, was mostly a construct with very few exceptions. And as you dig further into the activities of others involved in the assassination of President Kennedy, the notion of Oswald as a fictional character will become, very quickly, cold, hard reality. Now, it's believed by many that the shot that struck Kennedy in the throat was actually fired by David Ferry from the corner of the picket fence on the grassy knoll. And this was observed by a witness sitting across the Stimmons Freeway named Ed Hoffman. So in order to put the pieces together on the assassination, we have to first understand Ferry's role in the assassination. And in order to understand Ferry's role in the assassination, you've got to come to grasp David Ferry's history, including who his associates were throughout his life. Now, you have to understand his motivations in this. He'd been a rabid anti-communist like many others at the time. He felt Kennedy himself was at least soft on communism, if not a communist himself. And the story of all been told about fairies that he had no involvement in the assassination, and other than a few shady characters he surrounded himself with, there was no reason to believe he was involved in shooting the president. When you really come to grasp who Ferry actually was, the official story clearly is ludicrous. 
Many people not only familiar with Ferry because of their portrayal of him in the Oliver Stone JFK film. The movie was ultimately a finely crafted piece of propaganda. And Joe Pesci, who almost everybody knows, did a fantastic job playing the role of Ferry, despite the fact that most of the conversations uh, we saw him had on the screen between him and Jim Garrison were actually works of fiction. Now, Ferry was initially dragged into the investigation the weekend after Kennedy was shot. He was ratted out to the FBI by another person that was shown in Stone's film, Jack Martin. And Jack Martin is one of those spooks with a long and shady history. An investigator hired by Guy Bannister to work cases for Bannister's private investigation business located at 544 Camp Street. That's a very important address in this entire mess. This was the same private investigation office that purportedly Oswald been working out of when he was photographed handing out the flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And whether or not Bannister ever actually performed any private investigations is suspect. In fact, it appears the entire operation was a cover for CIA black operations. So why would Jack Martin throw David Ferry under the bus? If Jack Martin had not made that phone call, Ferry may not have been drugged into the investigation at all. Garrison would have eventually come across the photo showing Ferry and Oswald together to serve our patrol barbecue, indicating Ferry would still have come under some scrutiny. The real heat on Ferry stemmed from that phone call made by Jack Martin, during which he indicated Ferry and a few boys of questionable age went on a road trip from New Orleans to Houston to go ice skating. And that trip allegedly took place on the day the president was shot and happened to take the travelers through one of the most, um, what was described as one of the worst thunderstorms in the recent history of the state of Louisiana. Which was a strange time to be making that trip. The trip to Houston as described never actually happened. It was part of an elaborate cover-up designed to give Ferry an alibi. It was most certainly in Dallas on November 22nd. And as I said earlier, He's the one, he fired one of the shots that actually did hit Kennedy. Now, for those that thought that David Ferry was a peripheral character in this saga, he was actually a main player. Born in Cleveland in 1918, born into a Roman Catholic family, graduated from St. Ignatius High School, which was a Jesuit school. Got a degree in psychology from John Carroll University and Baldwin Wallace College. Then spent several years at St. Charles Seminary before leaving the priesthood for good in 1944. The, um, <clears throat> now, in the film, it was portrayed that all Ferry wanted in the world was to be a Catholic priest. But uh, unfortunately, he had a passion for teenage boys. That one weakness was the one that ensnared him for life. And it was uh, his involvement in pedophilia that apparently landed Ferry in a web of blackmail, espionage, and eventually assassination. The, uh, now there's an interview that's been on YouTube made the rounds for a few years explores the 
darkest side of the U.S. military and covert operations. It was uh, entitled Confessions of an Illuminati Wife, the Kay Griggs story. And it gives a shocking, although limited, view under the goings-on of high-ranking military officials and some of their sexual proclivities. The um, Griggs was a former wife of Colonel George Griggs, head of special operations with Admiral Kelso of NATO. And in her little presentation, she explains the, uh, the military and government agents, including the CIA, Naval Intelligence, and Army Intelligence, more often than not, try to recruit and train and promote homosexuals and sexual deviants because they're considered much more open to suggestion and easily controlled both mentally and physically. They particularly look for boys and young men who grew up without a father figure or inclined to be more susceptible to various forms of influence. In other words, they were looking for folks that could be controlled. And she claimed that Lee Harvey Oswald was among those recruited. And certainly he does fit that the picture. Now this may seem like a fantastic concept and ridiculous when compared to the popular image of soldiers and military being brave, selfish heroes. Having been there for a number of years, I can tell you, yeah, she was very close to the mark. Um, but when you explore the seedy and awful distasteful world of David Ferry and his cohorts in New Orleans, you begin to take what she had to say a little bit more um, seriously. Now, Ferry was undoubtedly homosexually inclined. There were a few pieces of information suggested he had dated women at some point in his past. Background check done on ferry by Eastern Airlines provided a retail credit company um, dated May 21, 1951. Said he'd been married when living in Tampa. And had two dependents. Doing a follow-up uh, by RCC. They couldn't find anybody in Tampa that knew Ferry that could confirm that information. Eastern Airlines' final background report on Ferry indicated that uh, David William Ferry Jr. was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps in 1963. Now, something of a revelation is no research had ever discussed Ferry having a son, or whether or not that was relevant to the assassination. And in the um, FBI file, um, what's there seemed to conflict with some of the other material. Now, Ferry was certainly an avid viewer of pornography in the 50s and 60s, and it wasn't as easy to consume as it is today. Um, Ferry's demons, in particular his attraction to young men and the grip that it held over him, didn't fall beyond the realm of possibility that uh, those demons were used against him to keep him in the service of the CIA and eventually the Mafia. Now, the FBI file on Ferry contains in the opening pages a letter he wrote, which opened with, Dear Bastard. Now, the bastard is not named, but uh, that information uh, appears to have been one Andrew Jerome Blackman. Um, and in it, he discusses... Um, porn 
Now, his documented proclivities would have made him prime candidate for recruitment into a number of organizations, if what Kay Griggs says is correct. Uh, at the time of the assassination, the two people in the world closest to Ferrier were Alvin Bufolf uh, and Leighton Martins. Martins would look on later to be a B-grade actor. Bufolf would continue to stay beneath the radar and avoid most of the spectacle that became the Kennedy assassination. And both were undoubtedly one-time victims of Ferry and his proclivities. Now, prior to the assassination, Ferry had been an airline pilot for Eastern Airlines, and his tenure would have begun in 1951. February 63, he'd find himself before the Eastern Airlines Disciplinary Board over allegations he provided him with uh, inaccurate information regarding his past. The inaccurate information as described in the formal hearing documents indicates he failed to report his prior emotional difficulties, which is a um, polite way to say uh, homosexual tendencies quite often. When he left St. Charles Seminary, the reason given was also emotional difficulties, which, coming from a, a seminary, is a nice way of saying Ferry was a homosexual and possible child molester without saying it. Um, now, Ferry was represented in this case by none other than G. Ray Gill, the primary lawyer for New Orleans mob figure Carlos Marcello. And when you move in those uh, realms, you don't represent the run-of-the-mill cases. Now, the emotional difficulties now being faced by Ferry that led to the Eastern Airlines disciplinary hearing stemmed from a criminal case filed against him for his alleged misconduct with a 15-year-old boy named Alexander Landry. Now, <clears throat> in an article by uh, writer John Craig, the claim was made that Ferry was fired for homosexual activity on the job. Now, that was implied, but never outright stated in the transcripts and case documents that were available for perusal. A decade earlier, Ferry had been in charge of a legitimate branch of the Civil Air Patrol. And this is where that photo of David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald came from. In 1961, though, Ferry was running an unauthorized branch of the Civil Air Patrol known as the, the Metairie Falcon Squadron, which he'd started using a forged charter. And Alexander Landry was one of his recruits. It appears Ferry considered Landry his best friend, and it was apparent that Ferry had actually fallen in love with him and encouraged him to run away from, from his parents. After the charges were brought, Ferry, along with the assistance of Sergio Arkasha Ar 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 Smith and Andrew Blackman, attempted to coerce a witness in the case identified as Eric Michael Crochet, 16 years old. Crochet was very close with Landry at the time of the alleged misconduct. Ferry, Arkasha, and Blackman went on to, to the workplace of Crochet, where Ferry forced him to sign a document saying his initial statements to the police that backed up Landry's account were false. And he threatened him that if he didn't sign the document, he may be paid a visit by his Cuban friend, referring to Arkasha. This, of course, reported back to the police, which brought even more heat down on Ferry. You know, all this detail was never reported by the Warren Commission. 
they had a job to paint Oswald as a Cuban lunatic, uh, hair-triggered temple, temper, and um, a lone nut gunman, in other words. But when you look underneath the surface, you get an entirely different picture. Now, the details of the case against uh, Ferry at this point are unimportant in regard to the assassination. But a few statements Al Landry made to Garrison and his team gave a little bit more insight into the life of David Ferry. Late 1661, Landry was a member of Ferry's Lakefront uh, Civil Air Patrol. He observed Ferry and the company several Cubans that he didn't know. And Ferry relayed to him he was working for the CIA and involved in the rescue of anti-Cuban uh, Castro Cubans from Castro's jail. Ferry even showed Landry a 15-inch scar on his stomach and told him he'd been stabbed in one of those missions. And then Ferry went on to describe some of his contacts with the CIA, including a meeting in Ferry's room in Miami after one raiding mission. Now, this gives a different uh, perspective to Ferry and his involvement in what was going on. Landry continued in his statement to Garrison that Ferry had ended up with knowledge of the Bay of Pigs incident. Told Garrison, according to Ferry, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, many of the Cubans became hostile toward both Kennedy and the CIA, as they were now being painted as just completely incompetent. Ferry had a blackboard at his apartment on which he had drawn out what the plans for the invasion should have been and how things went wrong. And he also advised Garrison he had on occasion gone to Sergio Rancho Smith's home with Ferry while they watched films of the failed invasion. Shortly after this, in 1962, Landry joined the, the military and wouldn't have any contact with Ferry until he got out in 66. Now, raising the Landry case may seem extraneous, but it does highlight the relationship of the people involved and connects everybody to the CIA. All of Ferry's associates, with the exception of Landry, also participated in the assassination in one form or another. And if you study the relationships between the people involved in the assassination, you get more answers than studying any of the details about what happened at Dealey Plaza. Now, the Landry case was eventually dismissed, but from it, you get the indication that Ferry, uh, Arcasia, and Blackman were very tight by 1961. And Arcasia. I had been a very close associate of Ferry's for years about the time of the assassination. And they were close enough for Ferry to bring Acacia along when he tried to tamper with a juvenile witness, a charge that would have landed both men in jail. And Blackman was also loyal to Ferry. It stemmed from their relationship in the years prior when Blackman, like Lee Harvey Oswald, was a member of Ferry's original Civil Air Patrol unit. Now, Ferry's a documented work history and many other things from all those years ago is difficult to really verify. Numerous conflicting timelines in Ferry's history show that uh, some of his alleged employment was fabricated or at least doctored. Also gaps that are unaccounted for. More likely in one of these gaps that Ferry found himself under the employment of or at least on a contract level with the CIA. And when you find you can't trust the official documentation, the best way to show that Ferry was in fact working with the CIA is through provable relationships such as the one with Clay Shaw. 
Now, there are a lot of incidents on the record that when looked at in their totality make it clear that David Ferry and Clay Shaw had been associates for many years before the assassination. And they continued this relationship even after the assassination. One such incident occurred in the early 1960s, witnessed by a woman named June Rolfe. Now, Rolfe, was, who was familiar with Clay Shaw, told Jim Garrison she'd seen Ferry and Shaw together. There's a handwritten note that was found in Gar uh, Garrison's investigation file that said, uh, statement Ms. June Roth to the effect that in the early 1960s she saw Clay Shaw in a light-colored Thunderbird convertible at the top down. There were two young men in the front seat with Shaw and David Ferry, whom she recalls because of his makeup job hair and was sitting in the back seat. When it comes to evaluating a statement of potential witnesses, oftentimes their statements will contain information that's of significant value. However, the witness themselves and not understand the greater implications of the information that they're providing. And this is a perfect example. When you dig into Clay Shaw, you find that Shaw did own a Thunderbird convertible from 1959 until at least 1964. And this is referenced numerous times in the Garrison paper Clay Shaw Files. So if Ms. Roth fabricated that statement, how'd she know to say that she saw Shaw in a convertible Thunderbird? So in all likelihood, what she said was true. And the description of Ferry's makeup job hair would indicate she was not only familiar with Ferry, um, but the description she gave of was not indica another indication her statements made to Garrison were true. And... Why that this uh, reference to the makeup job hair of Ferry was uh, important. Many people allege Ferry suffered from alopecia. That's a genetic disease that causes one to lose all their hair and, and not have the ability to grow it back. Well, now, frankly, medically speaking, there's not one shred of evidence that Ferry suffered from alopecia. In fact, his background check in 1951 indicated he was in good health with no known ailments other than minor asthma. But by 63, he had lost his hair. Well, you have to ask yourself, if it wasn't alopecia, what could have caused the fairy to, lo uh, to lose his hair? And that was probably the cause of the launch of the U-2 pilot program by the CIA in 54. There are a number of suggestions that Ferry was a U-2 pilot. Of course, there's no records that prove it. Uh, but when you research the early U-2 pilots, you'll find that because of the pressurization of the suits they wore, most of the pilots lost their hair just like Ferry did. Now, another statement made to Jim Garrison in regards to Shaw and Ferry's relationship came from a man named Henry Lesnick, and it was found in a document labeled Shaw Leads 2, where it's called the Illinois Lead. And according to that statement, Henry Lesnick, who was in the Department of English at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, written and stated that a friend of his who lived in New Orleans for 18 months, 1961 and 62, admitted to him that he was Clay Shaw's lover during that period. And this friend of Lesnick's also stated that David Ferry was Shaw's lover as well. Friend states that he met him early in 61 at a party they attended together. Then there's the Moret lead. 
Um, Mark Lane, an attorney who's wrote a number of books about the Kennedy assassination, interviewed the Moret family. That's Oswald's aunt. And they're in it a few days after Lee left New Orleans, which is to say a few days after September 24, 1963. Two men appeared at Moret's home to ask where Lee was. One was described by Ms. Moret as a tall, well-dressed, gray-haired man. And when uh, shown several photographs by Mark Lane, Ms. Moret picked out a picture of Shaw as one of the two men. Another garrison lead. Now, since his case was destroyed by the federal government for all practical purposes, a lot of this never came to light. But another garrison lead was labeled the Morgan Shreveport phone number. Name and phone number of a man interviewed uh, W. Robert Morgan with a mailing address at 700 Paramount Road in Shreveport was located in Shaw's notebook. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. First reason, because of a mutual associate of Shaw and Morgan, David Ferry. According to Garrison's notes, among the names listed in Clay Shaw's notebooks, a man named Morgan. Morgan's phone number and three reports indicated in the notebook, and a review of David Ferry's telephone calls revealed that Ferry called that number from his home phone more than once. Well, one thing about the assassination and the lead-up to it, there's no such thing as coincidence. And the other reason this number is interested in is in Clay Shaw's notebook. It's located on a page just beneath another contact of Clay Shaw, and that was Leighton Martin's. Martin's not only one of Ferry's closest friends, but one of the two boys he allegedly took the trip to Houston with on the day of the assassination. So it's not possible for Shaw to have known Leighton Martin's without knowing, at least knowing about, his best friend, David Ferry. Now, on March 29, 1967, Leighton Martins would testify before the grand jury in New Orleans he had never seen David Ferry and Clay Shaw together. January 15, 1968, Martins would be questioned by Clay Shaw's attorney. And he indicated he didn't meet Clay Shaw until long after the assassination and after Garrison had begun his investigation. He said that Shaw had recognized him on Bourbon Street from his photo, which had appeared in the local papers. And it was on this occasion on Bourbon Street that Martin's alleges was the first time uh, they had met. But if you look at the relationship between the players, and not necessarily the details of the assassination, the plot becomes very apparent. And it also becomes apparent that Martin's statements were not true. Martin's law had a long-standing relationship with Ferry, and Ferry had a long-standing relationship with Shaw. For the two not to have met would be nearly impossible, and in all likelihood implausible. Garrison's list of witnesses who had seen Shaw and Ferry together included Betty Rubio and Mr. and Mrs. Nicholas Tayden. Tayden had seen uh, Ferry and Shaw together at the Lakefront Airport. Robert Wagner and Jim Louvier had seen them together at both uh, Ferry service stations, which Ferry acquired after the assassination, which means he came into some money, and at Ferry's house. James Lawrence saw them together at Ferry's service station in 1964. And then there William Dunn, Henry Earl Parma, Corey Collins and town marshal John Manchester saw the pair, allegedly with Lee Harvey Oswald, when he made a trip to the Clinton voter registration office. I mean, the number of witnesses that tied Ferry and Shaw together is overwhelming. And these statements, when looked at in their totality, make it clear for the relationship between the two as solid as it can be. And there was a number of references that uh, Ferry and Clay Shaw had a... Uh, 
personal relationship. And there's one more rarely discussed connection between Shaw and Ferry that's has enormous implications as far as CIA is concerned. Mohammed Aden, several of the alleged 9-11 hijackers that lived in Sarasota, Florida, and had done at least some of their pilot training at what many suspected was a small CIA-run airport near Venice. Well, looking at the various Clay Shaw documents located in Garrison's file, there was a memo based on the contact with the office by uh, Martin Waldron, one of the then of the Houston Bureau of the New York Times. And according to Bethel, who received the call, the New York Times had received two memos from their local stringers concerning a possible Shaw-Ferry connection. But the Times at that point in time uh, did not want anything to do with the story. According to memos, one Ray Sadler, then a University of South Carolina professor, had done a doctoral thesis on an abortive anti-Batista invasion from New Orleans allegedly in 1947. An airport had been leased near Venice, Florida by a man named Shaw. One of the pilots for the anti-Cuban mission was reportedly David Ferry. In the name of Scott Wilson, then connected with the International Trademark, named as a participant in the intended operation as a correct description of an individual of some influence in New Orleans in political and civic affairs. So when you dig into the Jim Garrison material that never saw the light of day thanks to government interference, it becomes very clear that there's a lot of relationships that, when viewed in totality, torpedo the uh, Warren Commission case. And this rare gem um, that showed up in the garrison files highlights the possibility the relationship between Shaw and Ferry may have gone all the way back to the early days of the CIA in 1947. Remember, the CIA was created in late 47. It had originally, the same operations had been originally done by the OSS, and then it became the CIA. And when you have a single memo on a file with a random statement indicating a relationship that may not be anything concrete or definitive about it, when you've got hundreds of thousands of individual indicators like that, you can start to see patterns emerge become better positioned to estimate the likelihood of the veracity of the information presented. In this case, the specific details about the source of the information uh, appear plausible. David Ferrier is reported to have been living in Tampa, not far from Venice in the late 40s. And while not a direct co um, corroboration, the general time frame and location appear to be close to what we know about Ferry, making it more likely than not the statement's true. And if that statement is true, then the implications are vast. Memo didn't demonstrate that Clay Shaw, whom the CIA admitted was a contact from 1949 through 1956, was actually a lifelong agent beginning in 1947. It would also demonstrate that Ferry's relationship with the agency stretched back to that same year, which was also the first year of the CIA, so he may actually have had a con uh, connection with the OSS. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. This is part three of the two Oswalds, and we'll be doing a part four tomorrow and see what else we cook up. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.